I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I will say, I don't know if this is a normal reaction, but I feel like I want to gag. Like, Are you having a physical response? I actually feel like I want to throw up by looking at that doll. That's big hit show producer Sabrina Fang. And she and I are in Forks, Washington, standing in front of the creepiest doll in the history of movies. This is our moment to stand in proximity to Chuck Esme, as she's known. Chuck Esme is an animatronic baby. Built to play Bella and Edward's already freakishly mature newborn daughter Renesme in one scene from the fifth Twilight movie, Breaking Dawn Part 2. But the director of photography reportedly took one look at her and said, that looks like Chucky. And after that, the doll got axed from the film and its name became Chuck Esme. It's the classic child star career arc where they throw you out the minute you stop being cute, except in Chuck Esme's case, the arc itself took one minute. They used a CGI baby instead, and the doll ended up here, in Washington, as part of the Forever Twilight in Forks collection, a museum of screen-used costumes and props from the Twilight films. She lives in a glass box. She, of course, is actively melting. This is Emery Dameron. She's a curator at the museum. You can see it kind of drops down onto her tunic, and it's kind of bleeding onto her clothing. Do you think it has to do with climate change? We really have no reason why she should be melting. There are rumors that the doll sometimes escapes her glass box and wanders around the museum at night. Are you afraid to be in here by yourself at all? I wouldn't say that I'm exactly afraid, but there's definitely multiple occurrences in here that I've personally experienced that have been a little unnerving to where I've said that I didn't really want to come into work the next day and I needed a break from her. I can confidently report that the doll is definitely haunted and has learned to escape from its glass prison and will someday take revenge on all of us. But chances are you'd also be animated by the spirit of vengeance if you'd missed out on your chance to be part of a cultural moment like the Twilight Saga just because someone thought you were weird looking. The point is, a hit as big as Twilight always has consequences for the industry that produces it, for the folks who helped make it happen, as well as those who never wanted anything to do with it. And sometimes, like a decomposing plastic doll baby, those consequences aren't pretty. Please don't taunt the doll. She's been through enough. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. 
I'm Alex Papadimus. In this episode, we're talking about the eternal life of the Twilight Saga and how a simple vampire story has had unexpected, far-reaching ramifications. Chapter 5. Twilight Forever. In the state of Washington, under a near-constant cover of clouds and rain, there's a small town named Forks. Population, 3,120 people. This is where I'm moving. That, of course, is Kristen Stewart as Bella Swan in the first Twilight movie. That film forever altered the career trajectories of its young stars, its director, its producers, and basically everybody who had anything to do with it. That part is a Hollywood story, and we'll get to it in Act 2 of this episode. We're in vampire country from here on out. But the books and movies that make up the Twilight Saga have also changed life in Forks, a very real small town in northwest Washington. The city of Forks welcomes you. For years, Twilight fans have gathered here each September to celebrate Twilight and everything associated with it. Oh yeah, here we go. This is our people. They got the Twilight shirts. They do it around September 13th, which is canonically Bella's birthday. It started as Stephanie Meyer Day, a town holiday named for Twilight's author, but at the request of Stephanie Meyer, one of contemporary literature's more reticent public figures, they've since changed the name to the more general Forever Twilight in Forks. Last year, because of the pandemic, the in-person part of the festival did not take place. So for Twilight fans, this year is a bit of a homecoming. I mean, I can't believe all these people are here. It's amazing to me. This is Lissy Andros, the executive director of the Forks Chamber of Commerce. Since it's been two years since we did it, I kind of think I forgot what the turnout is. So it's, uh, it's amazing. I'm glad to see people here happy and smiling and stuff. So And masked up and everything. When Lissy discovered the Twilight books, it was 2008, and she was living in Texas, training therapy dogs. I was just kind of at a place in my life that, you know, I thought, God, is this what the rest of my life is going to be like, you know? And when I read the Twilight Saga, it was like a fire was reignited inside of me. It made me remember, you know, all those firsts, like first love and, you know, uh, those feelings. And I think that that's been the same for a lot of people. But not a lot of people responded to Twilight quite the way Lissy did. She says the books inspired her to pack up her life and her mom and move to Forks, having done very little research. Which is why she didn't think twice about moving with 12 dogs to a place where it rains all the time. 12 wet dogs for like six months was something I had not planned for. But anyway. Eventually, Lissy got a job at the Chamber of Commerce and started figuring out how this town could harness the growing influx of Twilight-based tourism. Forever Twilight and Forks is a team effort that wouldn't exist without a small army of volunteers. But if this were a Vegas show, Lissy would be the one backstage in a headset yelling, go, 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 at the backup dancers. She's been doing this since 2015. 
The festival customarily ends with a big karaoke party where everyone sings the wistful Christina Perry ballad made famous by the final montage of Breaking Dawn Part 2. And our last song is always A Thousand Years and we're all crying. So that there's that. <laughs> but when people aren't crying, there's a lot of fun to be had. We have great parties. We have tons of meals. We have like twilight shopping. We have group hikes. We have cosplayers that come and portray all the different characters. So it's kind of like going to Disneyland and being around Cinderella. We heard this again and again from people we talked to at Forever Twilight. The thing about Forks being like Disneyland. It's like Disneyland, but for Twilight. <laughs> this is like Disneyland for Twilight fans. <laughs> if they could get some sort of like wolf ride, we'd be there. <laughs> Of course, Forks is not a theme park. To extend the Disneyland metaphor, it's only the Magic Kingdom for a few days every year and only for visitors. For everybody else, the rest of the year, it's Anaheim. Also, it's not really the town from Twilight. You don't know how disappointed I was to find out the movie wasn't filmed here. <laughs> I was pissed. <laughs> Catherine Hardwick, the director of the first Twilight, did scout the town of Forks, but for production logistics reasons, most of the first movie was shot in and around Portland, Oregon. Most of the sequels were shot in Vancouver. They shot Breaking Dawn in Baton Rouge. But the story of Forks is still intertwined with the story of Twilight. And like a lot of things about the Twilight saga, the town's transformation into a tourist magnet begins with author Stephanie Meyer making choices with unforeseen implications. Stephanie was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Apart from four years at Brigham Young University, she's lived in or near Phoenix her whole life. She had never been to the Pacific Northwest before she started writing the first Twilight book. But she knew she wanted to set the story in a small town, as green and wet as possible, close to the ocean and close to a Native American reservation. So Stephanie started Googling maps and images and found Forks, a place that typically gets around 120 inches of rain a year, perfect for sparkly vampires in need of cloud cover, a short drive from the coast and from the Quileute Reservation, home of the Quileute tribe. Forks has one stoplight, several motels, and one weed store. In 2020, Donald Trump won 67% of the vote here. Back in the day, when timber was king, this was a boomtown. Then, in the 1990s, lumber exports started to flag, many local forests became federally protected, sawmills shut down, and logging jobs disappeared. Longtime residents have watched the former self-proclaimed logging capital of the world transition to an economy driven in part by twilight. Help you find anything? There's a one by four. Right behind you. Ten foot long. At the local True Value hardware store, we met employee Stu Gray, who has lived in Forks for nearly 40 years. We had one summer here, it was all of a sudden the town was full of goth chicks and nobody knew what the hell was going on, you know? It's like, what is the deal? Stu says the change started even before the movies came out. He remembers thinking it was cool to see teenagers this excited about a book. As for how the town as a whole feels about being the biggest locus of vampire-based tourism this side of Transylvania, Stu says it depends who you ask. 
the people who are smart enough to cash in on it are very pleased, and the rest of us are sick of sitting at the red light through two changes because there's too many cars in the other. Trivia, only red light and 160 miles. That's why we love it here. <laughs> the other kind of trivia you might like, this is... Uh, I'm trying to be, you know, they call themselves Twihards. This yeah. <laughs> is the moniker that they have taken, and it's been transposed locally to Twitards. So, <laughs> but only amongst some people. <laughs> it's not that there's tension, per se, but there's at least friction. For the people who come up here for one week every year, Forks is an escape from real life. But for the townsfolk, Forks is real life. And sharing that life with excitable Twihards is not always easy. Hello, guys. Charlene Lapel owns a flower shop that now doubles as a Twilight souvenir store. Right now, it's really hard to be excited. She sells a ton of T-shirts, bumper stickers, shot glasses, and replica Carlisle Cullen prescription pads during weekends like this one. But Charlene says that this year in particular, over a year and a half into a pandemic, having all these visitors taxing the infrastructure and resources of a one-stoplight town feels like a mixed blessing. I mean, there's been weeks that we had no milk, weeks that we've had no eggs, weeks that we had no cereal. And I think they think, oh, well, we can take the last loaf of bread off the shelf. But that could be for someone that, that can't get bread anywhere else. And I'm glad they're here, but I don't think they understand what pressure is putting on what we have here. On the road into town, there's a welcome to Forks sign. There's a lot of tire tracks on the shoulder left by people pulling over so they can take pictures of themselves in front of it. We pull over and take this picture too at one point. You can't help it. It's part of coming here and living the twilight dream for a while. But unlike us and the rest of the festival goers, most of the people who live in Forks didn't choose to be part of that dream. And Forks is also part of a larger community for whom the impact of twilight goes beyond traffic jams and empty shelves in the bread aisle. The Quilutes have been a small tribe from the beginning. But we have always had magic in our blood. We were great spirit warriors, shapeshifters, that transformed to the powerful wolf. This enabled us to scare off our enemies and protect our tribe. That's the Comanche actor Gil Birmingham playing Quileute patriarch Billy Black in a scene from the third Twilight movie, The Twilight Saga Eclipse. Twilight made the Quileutes famous without their consent, and this has been, at best, kind of a mixed bag, as Quileute tribe member Anne Penn Charles told PBS NewsHour in 2012. You know, there's people out there that didn't even know that the Quileutes even existed. But we start getting younger tourists and they're like, oh, well, where's Emily's house? And do you know where Jacob's? And I was like, Jacob's house? What do you mean? And, I, you know, my kids were like, oh, mom, there's a book written about Twilight. And then the elders, they, uh, you know, said, hey, Miss Anne, you got to get out there and educate people that were really not werewolves. You know, we're, we were from the wolf family and the wolf clan. In the book, Stephanie Meyer gets this part of Quileute lore exactly wrong. In the traditional version, a mythic hero called Kawati, the Transformer, populates Quileute land by turning two wolves into humans. That's wolves into humans. 
not the other way around. It seems like a small thing, but it isn't a small thing if somebody rewrites your culture's creation story and puts it in a book that sells millions of copies. Twilight is the most visible representation of the Quileute people in popular media, like, ever, and it portrays its Quileute characters in some deeply suspect ways. But it also misrepresents a foundational cultural myth. A few years ago, Quileute tribal councilman Chris Morganroth spoke to this issue at the Smithsonian Institution during an event celebrating native storytellers. That's the origin of our people. And uh, uh, when uh, Stephanie Myers was writing her uh, beginnings of her writings, and she took advantage of that and, uh, and made millions and millions of dollars. And she's still making millions of dollars today off of uh, one little thing that she saw on the Quileute website. Since getting caught up in the Twilight Saga, the Quileute Nation has gone Hollywood in at least one respect. They have retained the services of a no-nonsense publicist. When we made inquiries about speaking to members of the tribe, those inquiries were referred to her, and she declined to make anyone available to speak on the record. But in Forks, we met a lot of Twilight fans who were eager to talk to us about the indigenous characters in the books and Stephanie Meyer's treatment of the real people who inspired them. Coming back to it as an adult, you're able to look at it more critically, because when, when you're a kid, you're just thinking, oh, vampires and werewolves. This is Meg Lesko, one of many Twilight TikTokers who'd come to town for the festival. You notice that the only people of color within the series are compared to animals. They are called mongrels. They are called dogs. You talk constantly about how bad they smell. Their anger issues are brought up constantly. I don't think it was necessarily intended negative, but just the stereotypes that surround it are, are really abhorrent. Those stereotypes are all the more glaring in contrast with Stephanie Meyer's portrayal of the Cullens, who, despite being technically monsters, are wealthy and cultured and polite and very, very pale-skinned. They're kind of the one percenters of Monsterland. A lot of times when people critique Stephanie and her, her writing and her portrayal of that, there is some pushback of like, oh, it's not that serious, oh, it's just a book. But it's, it's, it always comes down to it is, it is not just a book for these people. It, it, is, it is real life. It, it, Forks is a real place. La Push is a real place. These are real people at the end of the day. One thing the books and the movies have done for the Quileute people is help focus public attention on a much bigger issue than the insensitivity of one writer's made-up story. In 1856, the Quileute signed a treaty with the U.S. government. They got fishing rights. The government got almost all their land. Ever since, Quileute territory in this area has consisted of a single square mile, the village of La Push. La Push sits between Olympic National Park and an ocean that is rising due to global warming. Most of it sits just above sea level, and many residents have become convinced that this is an increasingly dangerous place to live. In the last few years, there have been record-setting floods in this area. Plus, over 40% of the developed land in La Push is in a tsunami hazard zone, including the tribal school. In 2012, President Obama signed legislation that returned hundreds of acres of former Quileute land to the tribe. That same year, Anne Penn Charles told PBS NewsHour that the tribe's inadvertent role in the Twilight Saga had probably helped make that happen by focusing national attention on the area. It helped us. It helped us a lot to push Congress and, you know, House. And then when that bill was signed, it wasn't, 
You know, our, our ancestors and our past council members have been fighting for over 50 years for our northern boundary dispute. And, um, you know, to actually have that day and, you know, a document saying that, you know, this land is yours. It was like, wow. That reclaimed land sits outside the tsunami zone and out of the path of potentially overflowing rivers. The Quileute tribe's Move to Higher Ground program is an initiative to relocate the tribal school and eventually the rest of the community to the safety of that land. Many Twilight fans have taken up this cause as well. That's one fund that like, I think more people should donate to, especially because, you know, Stephanie Meyer is still profiting off of this. This is Damon Patterson, a Twilight fan who was visiting Forks from Allentown, Pennsylvania. And she's never given a cent to the actual people that, you know, she's profiting off of. And she should. But, you know, I've seen a lot of people that, like, you know, care and want to, like, try to change it, even though she won't. We should probably note that while there's no evidence Stephanie Meyer has kicked any money to the Move to Higher Ground initiative, and the Quileutes make a point of saying this in the FAQ on their website, there's also no proof that the famously private Twilight author hasn't written a check, like, privately. But the perception of her having done nothing for the tribe is kind of a truism among fans, and it's part of what motivates them to give back. This is one of the most impressive things about the majority of the Twilight fans we met. They know that the thing they love is problematic, and not just because, by 2022 standards, Edward's kind of a bad boyfriend. At the same time, they also know that boycotting Stephanie Meyer or throwing their Breaking Dawn Blu-rays in the trash would ultimately be a symbolic and kind of empty gesture. But they're not letting themselves off the hook. They're doing fundraisers on TikTok. They're spreading the word about the higher ground move. They're thinking about the wake their enthusiasm leaves in the world. These are the unforeseen consequences of a big hit. You pick a town after a quick Google search, and you put it on the map. Suddenly, your ideas are driving their economy. You maybe fictionalize a group of real-life people without thinking about the implications and create misconceptions that linger in the culture. This is the world Stephanie Meyer made, but the fans aren't letting it stop there. Because that's the other thing about a big hit. It's not really finished until people love it. And in the case of Twilight, some of those people are also trying to come to terms with its real-life impact. Here's Chloe Fife, another Twilight fan and friend of Damon's. It's now become to the point to where it's kind of like in our hands to fix the things that we ignored for so long. I'm hosting the karaoke event tomorrow night. That's the big, like, last final night tradition, which will be a lot of fun. And uh, then we do Thousand Years at the end, which is the, the tradition. And by that point, my voice is usually gone, so I just kind of mouth it while everybody else sings. And it's, it's pretty special. People, people get very emotional. This is Eric Odom. At Forever Twilight, he's kind of a mascot. Oh, and he was once a vampire. I played Peter the Nomad in the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. This is where we would normally play a clip from Breaking Dawn Part 2 where Eric says something, but Peter doesn't actually have any lines. I forget, did you get to die in the big battle scene? The big, uh, did you get a death scene? That's a point of contention. Yeah, I, uh, 
It was filmed. <laughs> oh man! It was. How filmed. did you die? Was well, it a cool was, death? It was a. It was a great death, man. There's a moment where. I come up and try and sucker punch Aro, and like as I swing at him, he grabs me, pulls me across his knee, smashes my head off, and throws me through the air. But uh, it ended up on the cutting room floor, and I'm, yeah, pretty sad. Still, Eric did get to be on a blockbuster movie set with limited actual responsibility, so he could treat it like film school. But more importantly, he also got a whole new family out of the deal. He came to Forever Twilight for the first time in 2015, filling in for somebody who canceled, and he's since been here for five of the last six festivals. It's funny, my my role has evolved a little bit over the years here where I am such a, a minor part in the movie and I have no delusion about being some bigger part of the film. But coming up here, I fell in love with the town. There are, however, two Twilight actors who have never attended Forever Twilight. You don't hear much about Rob Pattinson or Kristen Stewart at the festival. Their faces, of course, are everywhere you look. A sun-faded Edward Cullen glowers from the upstairs window of Charlene LaPelle's flower store. And when you walk through the Twilight Bazaar, Rob and Kristen stare at you from posters, t-shirts, the packaging of mint-conditioned Edward action figures, and the box covers of 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzles. Kristen and Rob, frozen in time, forever 18 and 22. They're looking at me right now, thanks to the one Forever Twilight souvenir I paid money for, a box of authentic New Moon candy hearts that say things like, Bite Me and I Heart EC. It remains unopened. Make me an offer. At Forever Twilight, it's as if the Robston aspect of Twilight fandom, the obsession with actual people Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, has mostly faded away even if these fans will never stop loving Bella and Edward. In what would probably come as a surprise to many of the circa 2008 critics who dismissed Twilight and panned their performances specifically, Rob and Kristen are now A-list actors. But their impressive post-Twilight careers, in which they've traded Bella and Edward for Princess Di and Batman, are still a part of Twilight's much broader legacy. Today, that legacy is everywhere you look. The list of actors whose first blockbuster was a Twilight movie includes everyone from National Treasure Anna Kendrick to 2019 Oscar winner Rami Malek. And if not for Twilight, Hollywood would probably never have spun franchises out of other YA series like The Hunger Games and Divergent books, so you can arguably add Jennifer Lawrence and Shailene Woodley to that list as well. And since no Twilight means no Fifty Shades of Grey and no Fifty Shades of Grey movies, we may as well throw Jamie Dornan and Dakota Johnson in there too, like a post-it attached to the list with one nipple clamp. Here's Melissa Rosenberg, who wrote the scripts for all five Twilight films. For me, it was a turning point in the mindset of studios and, and Hollywood of prior to Twilight. It was, everything's got to be made for the 13-year-old boys. Those are the ones who are driving box office. This was unapologetically about romance. It was about love. It was absolutely, this is what appeals to women. And what shocked everybody was it was a massive success. The box office was huge. Women and girls drove the box office. So it was kind of like, yeah, women and girls go to movies. If you make something they want to see. And I think that's what 
the makers of Divergent and, and Hungry Games and what all saw was, yeah, you can have a girl at the center of a movie and drive box office. Suddenly, people were searching for the next Twilight like crazy. Twilight director Catherine Hardwick. Everybody was finding every property of a young girl, young heroine, and of course, Hunger Games, you know, was super successful. How many other movies could we cite that wouldn't have been made without Twilight, you know? It's a precedent that people can go in when they pitch their project and say, hey, this movie made this much money, you know, you, it's not such a risk anymore. We're not the, you're not going to be the first ones to take the risk. Here's Twilight production executive Jillian Borer. I think it made uh, studios take seriously female audiences in a way that they hadn't been up to that point. In Hollywood, even though hits like Twilight are often unprecedented, precedent is everything. Jillian remembers a pre-Twilight news story about a studio executive taking the failure of a single movie as an excuse to write off an entire gender of movie star as non-viable. He made the statement, we are not making any more movies with female leads. Audiences don't want to see movies with female leads. We're not making them. And uh, I remember hearing that and having particular pride when Twilight came out because it was just, you know, really sort of throwing it in the face of um, the man who had declared audiences don't want to see movies with female leads. Twilight's most obvious impact was felt in book publishing. Just anecdotally, I spend part of every Saturday hanging around my local public library waiting for my 11-year-old kid to pick out a stack of books. And if you stand back and look at the YA section as a wall of covers, so much of the modern stuff looks like Twilight. It's designed to. The YA market is very cannibalistic. Here's Twilight producer Greg Muradian, who found Stephanie Meyer's Twilight manuscript while hunting through YA books. After Twilight, if you were to look at the next few years... There was a girl falls in love with an angel, a girl falls in love with a devil, a girl falls in love with a frog. Think of anything and everything. Uh, because for YA, literary sales don't have to be booming in order for it to be profitable. And they know that, you know, if you look on Amazon, it says, if you like this book, you might like this book. So it followed that trend for a long, long time. Filmically, I think it's really challenging to do things that are cannibalistic. The audiences are, are more particular. Twilight came out in 2008, the same year as the original Iron Man, which now looks like the most influential mainstream film of that year. It inaugurated the soon-to-be omnipresent Marvel Cinematic Universe, a.k.a. the MCU. Like Summit, the studio that made Twilight, Marvel Studios was also a scrappy little independent upstart back then. But by emulating comic book-style shared universe storytelling in ways no previous film franchise ever had, they found a way to not only super-serve an audience of young men, but also keep them coming back. I'm assuming you're aware of how well that worked out for them. So after 2008, superheroes were everything. And the world of movies, or at least big-budget movies, really did change. It got more restrictive, more closed off to other genres, including romance, even supernatural romance. This is not an argument about market-driven mass entertainment bulldozing arthouse cinema. That's a different conversation. This is about who gets big-budget fantasy fulfillment and who doesn't. With all due respect to Natasha Romanoff, is Black Widow really a fantasy for women? Or is that movie just another boy's fantasy that happens to have a female lead? In a sense, Twilight's real impact happened outside the multiplex, 
on smaller screens where programming decisions are based more on data than on old Hollywood conventional wisdom about who watches what. On TV, there's no question that a complicated and not wholly lovable female protagonist can drive a hit show. Studies indicate that the audience for streaming television skews both female and millennial. So maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise that Twilight became a hit all over again when it showed up on Netflix. This is where all those female viewers went when mainstream movies abandoned them. It took a while, but corporate entertainment megaliths are beginning to accept the role that young female consumers play in shaping what is actually popular, particularly on newer outlets like TikTok, where nearly 48% of the user base is 29 or younger, and, at least in the U.S., female users outnumber men by 2 to 1. It hasn't happened yet. But if these trends hold, we may still get to see what the world of blockbuster entertainment looks like when young women's tastes are shaping it. In the meantime, there's Twilight's other legacy. A community of fans whose existence and whose continuing dedication is proof of what could have been. There's no way of knowing what an MCU equivalent driven by the enthusiasms of women would look like. But what Forever Twilight shows us is that if you build a world like that, the fans will not soon forget it. This is what it sounds like when a bunch of Twilight fans have their picture taken by a drone. There's some, uh, here it goes. <laughs> this photo was later emailed as a souvenir to all the VITs. Yes, that's short for Very Important Twilighter, which was our badge category at Forever Twilight. We've spent a lot of time in this series talking about lasting communities sprung out of Twilight fandom. Fan fiction writers, cosplay crews, TikTokers. At Forever Twilight, people who've connected via those largely virtual worlds get to mix and mingle in real life. I came from Puerto Rico, so a long you came way. from Puerto Rico? Yes, <laughs> a long way. That is a long way. Yes, it is. Have you ever been to this part of the country before? No, I've never traveled before. This is my first time living in Puerto Rico. Yes. This is the first time in the United States? Oh my gosh. Yes. Welcome. That's so Thank exciting. You. <laughs> I'm Marie Herrera, and I came from South Carolina. I'm Jasmine Aquatis, and I came from Minnesota. <laughs> Mackenzie Matson, and I came from Orlando, Florida. Uh, did you all know each other prior to this event? Did you meet here? No. No, we all <laughs> met on TikTok. I really felt like I found my people. Yeah. Yeah. I know, so <laughs> Don't let me cry. We're actually meeting all for the first time. We know each other's names. We know somewhat what they look like, <laughs> and it's like, oh, we're, it's getting, you. we're getting to actually meet them and coincide with the fandom uh -huh. is just fantastic. The guy, people I just said hi to, Sarah and Nathan, I didn't know them until Thursday, and now we're the Three Musketeers. <laughs> We're talking about being together forever as a family, but the storyline, you know, the church looks at families being together forever, here and after. This is April Tennis. Sorry about the noise here. We were all in line for breakfast. As in any large family, 
There is a diversity of viewpoints at Forever Twilight, and we were reminded of that when we talked to April. She's from Salt Lake City and is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. the Mormon Church, like Stephanie Meyer. She's very modest. And, you know, you're wondering when you get to that point where they're married, you're wondering how is she going to do this and it be very modest enough for my 12-year-old to watch it and not be uncomfortable. And she nailed it. And so I like that standard that Stephanie put in the book of that one person is out there for you. The more people we talk to about Twilight, ostensibly this niche interest for a certain kind of young person, the more it started to seem like this weird pop-cultural magic mirror. April can look at it and see a reflection of her values, which obviously lean conservative. But we met a lot of people in Forks who identified as feminists and articulated various other progressive ideas, and many of them said that being fans of Twilight, this conservative book about a vampire who won't have sex before marriage, had informed and shaped those points of view. I was talking with this about someone earlier about how, like, a lot of Twilight is just, like, Mormon propaganda. And I was like, but every fan is, like, so feminist. Twilight fan Emily Beisel. And I think it's because we had to deal with all of this, like, I hate Twilight and you like Twilight, and then it, like, made all of us into feminists. That's interesting. So you feel like it actually contributed to maybe like an, a feminist awakening a little bit, that you had to defend it? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's not the only reason I'm a feminist, but I feel like a lot of people had this moment where it's like, this series isn't like the best series, but it's not bad and people hate it. And they hate it because young women like it and that's not okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes from there. Here again is Twilight screenwriter Melissa Rosenberg. I think the lasting legacy of, of Twilight is interestingly, dare I say, feminist. Which is funny because I think the book and the movies have gotten a lot of flack from feminists for some justifiable reasons and some not necessarily. But ultimately, it ends up being a film for women about a woman who's going for what she wants sex <laughs> and a man yes but ultimately her own empowerment after twilight melissa became the creator and showrunner of the netflix series marvel's jessica jones whose protagonist is a complicated hard-drinking super anti-hero with ptsd i guess some feminists would consider twilight disdain on on a feminist reputation Jessica Jones was my answer to those feminists. But looking back, and it's interesting to have this opportunity to look back and, and go, you know, no, actually, I, I take full ownership of Twilight and the feminism in there. If you look at it, she is driving this story, and, and it's a story about empowerment. But, you know, I credit Stephanie as well uh, for, for, you know, creating a story that women want to see and hear and read about and, and get themselves involved in. So, so this is me taking owner, feminist ownership of Twilight, goddammit. <laughs> and I think this is like a beautiful female space for uh, a whole bunch of people. I mean, not just women, but all of us to come here and, and uh, communicate and celebrate together. Something we love. This is Josephine Vermillier, who we met at the Forever Twilight costume contest. Josephine is from Switzerland, and she showed up dressed as Bella. 
I like to compare it to like football fans. Like nobody complains or compares when men go out all banded up wearing the same things together. You can call that cosplay with their Ronaldo or whatever shirts on. <laughs> and you know, they go out in huge groups, like huge groups. They, they sleep out in front of the football uh, stadium and then they go and they talk about it and then they have fantasy football outside of it. We're not even at that level. We just love the movie. We come in cosplay. What we can't ignore, of course, is that point that Twilight fan Emily Beisel made a minute ago that the Twilight fandom as a community skews more feminist than the books did because this is a community forged in the fire of misogyny. If fans of Twilight tend to flock together and support each other even if they've never met in real life, it's partly because they've all spent years enduring the same dumb jokes about sparkly vampires. And those jokes about what they were into invariably masked a deeper, crueler judgment of who they were. Here again is Twilight fan Damon Patterson, along with his partner Elijah Eshavaria and another friend, Chloe Fife. Middle schoolers are awful. They run out of like physical features to bully you about. They're going to find out what you like, and they are going to burn it to the ground. To the ground. On recess, they're going to throw you on the ground and just be like, you like Twilight. This is Damon. I remember um, I had like the book that came out that was like about the movie, like had all the pictures of Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, like it was like the companion to the movie. I got it at the Scholastic Book Fair. I was so excited. And I remember probably like two or three years later with my friends sitting in my bedroom, cutting pieces of it out and vandalizing it because everybody thought it was this bad, dumb romance movie. So I had to pretend I didn't and I thought it was stupid and I still own it I still have it even though it's like torn up I still have it and here's Elijah you just wanted to to just fit in to like just be perceived as like a normal person and it's sad but um, I think that's one of the greatest things about like getting older is being able to reclaim those things We would. On our last day in Forks, we met up with Chandra Muchi, a cosplayer who comes to Forever Twilight every year to walk around dressed as Aro, the leader of the Volturi. You heard from her at the end of our last episode. She was in a deep depression and then had a kind of epiphany seeing Michael Sheen in New Moon. At one point during a panel, Chandra was asked to tell that story to a whole room full of Twihards. And then I started crying suddenly because it's like it's bringing back all these feelings and memories of when I was so depressed that my world was I mean, quite actually black and white and there was no color and there was nothing. And this, this crazy, dumb, teeny bopper teenage movie is what introduced me to this world of amazing people. I was looking around and when I said, I'm so proud of all of you for being so strong and having endured the public beating that, you know, everyone in this room took from like 2008 to like 2013. It just, and then you meet them on the dance floor and, you know, and they are dancing with strangers, you know, or they met new friends and now they're dancing and taking selfies and doing things that they wouldn't ordinarily do and they seem so happy. And my favorite thing is when I see two people who I know didn't know each other, like hug at the end of the night and they're like, I miss you, like, I'm gonna miss you. Like, let's exchange phone numbers, let's whatever. Uh, so I just see it as bringing people together. So it's just watching everyone come together. Later that night, we saw Chandra on stage with her fellow cosplayers now dressed like normal people, preparing to blend back into their non-Twilight lives along with everybody else. Oh. 
The moment had arrived. The fans formed a semicircle at the base of the karaoke stage to sing A Thousand Years. Some people lift their phones high to capture the moment on video. Others just link arms and sway. It's a link arms and sway kind of song. If you listen close, you can hear people laughing, as people do when surrendering to a moment that feels cheesy, which this moment does. But it's cheesy because it's a perfect moment. And it's perfect because everybody on the dance floor is surrendering to it, even though it's cheesy and on the nose. For the time it takes to sing this song, judgment is suspended. The people on this dance floor are surrounded by their own, they are eternal, and no one from outside this circle can tell them anything about who they are. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang, Lori Gallaretta, and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Our theme is composed by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Courtney Holt, and Julie McNamara. Special thanks to Joe Paulson, Eric Spiegelman, and Jenna Levin. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.